film, 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 Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Chris Evans. And I'm Brett Nauru. And we have two of two and a half men because the other half of our man, Glenn Falkenstein, is the main Adelaide. Yes. Uh, this week, the part of Glenn Falkenstein will be played by the one and only... Hi, I'm Chanel Tarabay. Hi, I'm Chanel Tarabay. That's right. In her <laughs> debut role as Glenn Falkenstein. Uh, this week, later on, she will transform into Glenn Falkenstein when we do an interview with the head of the Adelaide Film Festival. But first to an Australian film, Mountain. Yes, the wonderfully exuberant, exhilarating, annihilating, and all the other ting <laughs> and other metaphors that you can apply to this film by Jennifer Pedham, which is a follow-up from her previous film, Sherpa, which is really good, which is not this film, Mountain, really bad. Yeah, not only is Mountain not the film Sherpa, uh, though you might be mistaken um, for thinking it is, since it features a lot of reused footage and outtakes from Sherpa by the looks of things. But yeah, it's, it's also not good, because this is a movie that's about telling rather than showing, and it, it tells us, in really laboured terms, a lot of the things that Sherpa illustrated really elegantly through the narrative and visuals. I know, I mean, I'm okay with films that try to tell me things when they have something to tell me. I think Mountain just didn't have anything to tell me. And when it did, even though it had the beautiful tonal softness and depth of William Defoe's voice, even that couldn't compensate for the fact that he was just mousing incredibly pretentious dialogue. This movie was bad, sad, and made me mad because all it wanted to do was talk about how climbing mountains was a fad. And yes, it is completely in rhyme, exactly like how I just spoke right there, in, oh. as frustratingly as, as frustrating as that is. It isn't always in rhyme, but it often is to frustrating end. But it is always pretentious and overwritten. We saw and raved about, except for Glenn, uh, Terence Malick's <laughs> Voyage of Time earlier this year, and we thought, oh, the dialogue in that was maybe a bit superfluous, but hey, at least it was well-written. There is no skill at poetry in the narration here and yet it's layered all over the entire film it's weird because there is too much of narration and yet not enough and i didn't think that contradiction could exist in a film until i saw mountain and i'm like can william defoe just shut up yeah. but also can he actually say something meaningful and that was a very frustrating emotion to have yeah, it's all really shallow. The kind of dialogue that was in the movie was basically glorified nursery rhymes. You know, mm -hmm. I, I could write better poetry without learning the language. So it is just frustratingly maddening. Yeah, it was just full of really faux profundity. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have ever tried Inspirobot, the online uh, inspirational quote uh, random generator. I reckon if you click that button a few times, you'll understand what Mountain was trying to get at. What really, really annoyed me was this pop culture philosophy that was being petrified and somehow subjected to through this film where I'm supposed to believe that mountains are metaphors for transcendence, for human dignity, human valour and achievement and how they're going to be there when we are not around and yet they're watching over us because they are there and we are so, so insignificant. We're just a cog in the wheel of the universe. I really didn't appreciate how we essentially ended on the fact that mountains don't care about us you know they're here and we'll always be here and it doesn't matter that that we exist at all and I just felt like well duh 
Mountains obviously don't care. They're not sentient. Of course, they were here before us. I, I just don't understand what is so profound and new and groundbreaking about what you're trying to tell me. About half an hour into this movie, Willem Dafoe tells us something like, we are awed by the beauty of mountains. And like, yeah, that's the premise of the film. I think I've got that, but if I've paid to see this movie and I've been watching it for 30 minutes, why do they feel the need to tell us everything when they're ostensibly making a visually driven film? You need to have faith that your images speak much more than this faux profound dialogue could. This is the kind of movie that people kind of roll their eyes about when they listen to the word art house or art house philosophy movie because you know a lot of this full profundity that this movie promotes is actually not even genuine it just feels forced and written by someone who just got out of high school and a lot of this movie is this kind of shallow kind of interesting but not really stuff like even down to the music the music was absolutely beautiful but so wrong for this movie just did not fit at all and was trying to add and build up some sort of emotion for you but because the images in the film itself weren't delivering that it was it just seemed very incongruent they didn't fit with the actual images i was just like wait why is that the mountain came into view with this sort of like forceful energetic piece of music and i'm like wait that doesn't make any sense or these uh, shots of people doing adventure sports but layered over very calm pieces of music yeah i mean i guess what they were trying to do it was emphasize the majesty of the mountains with these pieces of music but because these pieces are so dynamic there needs to be some sort of like action associated yeah. with them instead of it's just still shots of mountains no, which is just more associated like, with peacefulness and not so much high energy it's always this if they're not still shots it, they're drone shots that are always repeating the same motion so oh, fly over the mountain fly to the side of the mountain look at what's behind the mountain the motion of the images needs less dynamic musical pieces to accompany it because yeah, it's a, it's a very repetitive film. I think this movie didn't know what it wanted to be, and that kind of contrast between the image and the music really illustrated that the film seems to always be going in different directions. And after a while, there was no actual narrative cohesion or focus as to what they were trying to do with these images. And it's interesting to compare it with Malik and Voyager Time. Yeah, the way I see it, it's a film made up of a whole bunch of different parts. One is this kind of Koya Nuskatsi type symphonic documentary that's contrasting man and nature and trying to find patterns in the natural world. But it doesn't work because that film had a great degree of thought put into the images and their sequence in order to suggest things. Whereas here, we're just seeing endless, incessant images of mountains shot on drones, always doing the same thing. We feel like we've seen everything this movie has to offer within a few minutes. Um, the other part of this movie is like a really pretentious version of a ski stunt movie, except instead of the punk rock or hip hop that you would have in an extreme sports movie, this is set to things like Vivaldi's The Four Seasons. And the other part of the movie is Sherpa outtakes. And none of these parts fit together because there's no poetic premise to the imagery that links them. There's no cohesion in what it's doing. So it just feels like a haphazard collection of clips about mountains. To, to be fair, though, I do have to point out something that I liked about the movie. Um, I do have to say that some of the candid shots of, like, the people in the movie so some of the mountaineers when they would they would give us close-ups of of their experience and the exuberance that they may have felt whilst you know i wanted more of this because this was the best part of the film um it was interesting an interesting thing to note and i just really wish that that was explored more because that was probably the most salient and uh, attention grabbing part of the film yeah, I agree with Chanel. That is interesting. But the reason that the film doesn't do those kind of shots service is because 
for a great part of the film, people are held at arm's length, at an abstract, because the imagery seems to be about how insignificant we are compared to nature. And then we dip into the footage that Chanel just mentioned, but we don't go far enough and don't um, really get a sense for the human struggle. We can't empathize, yet the movie wants us to, since Willem Dafoe keeps talking about that. However, it doesn't nail the idea of what the mountains stand for visually. We're told that the mountains don't care about us, but the movie never nails down exactly what the mountain is because it's gone in so many different directions. So instead of the mountains not caring about us, I just felt at the end of this that I didn't care about the mountains, which is a crazy thing to feel after being hit over the head with talk about their significance for over an hour. This film is so prone to overstatement. There's no one shallow point that this movie isn't insistent on making three times. You'll hear basically the same statement paraphrased 15 minutes after the last time we heard it, then again half an hour later. It just goes around in cycles. As an essay, it's really badly structured because it doesn't develop its points. It starts out on a point, then shifts onto something else, then lurches back to furthering the point from earlier. There's just no logical progression to the writing in this film. The most interesting part of the movie is the exploration of the way that people don't respect the mountain, but that was done much better in Sherpa. Actually, that's a great point, Chris, because I wanted to talk about the, the things or the moments that the film does well. They're few and far between, but they're there. Uh, the fact that I really liked about the film was that this kind of dialogue about uh, capitalism and critique of uh, culture and exploration and this reverence to what mountains have now become a commodification aspect. And that was done much better in Sherpa. And so in my opinion, I thought, and maybe I'm cynical, is that Jennifer Peedham thought, I have all this unused footage from Sherpa. What can I do with that footage? Let's make another movie about it. I think that is the case because a lot of the footage here made more sense in Sherpa. The movie's already way too long at 74 minutes. I feel like they felt that they needed to pad this out to a length that would be considered acceptable for theatrical release. But but can we talk about the opening, actually? Because oh, that, that's something yeah. which... It was bizarre. It opens with shots of the Australian Chamber Orchestra um, gearing up and Willem Dafoe preparing to record his narration and being like, okay, I think I can do this, guys. It's, it's weird because this movie wants to be this aesthetic experience that speaks to your soul, but it opens with a thing undermining all of that, being like, hey, guys, we prepared this for you. It's all just a movie. Look at the artifice behind it. That's counter to what the aesthetic goals of the movie are, so why is it there? There's so much that doesn't seem to have been thought through about this film. I think it shows that Sherpa... It was a very fortunate production because it could have been a film like this and was designed to be just a general movie about Everest, but ended up being this very interesting political documentary because of the events that took place when it was being filmed. This is much less interesting. It's in cinemas now, and now Ferret will tell us why we shouldn't see Victoria and Abdul. Thank you, Chris. Uh, I've tried to avoid talking about this movie, but I guess I have to now. Uh, Victoria and Abdul is directed by Stephen Fryers, because of course it is. It's definitely a movie Stephen Fryers would direct. It's exactly the kind of movie that only Stephen Fryers could direct. It's basically, in short, let me summarize it for you, because it has no depth whatsoever, so I'm trying to be as short as possible about its premise. It's basically an unlikely relationship, or friendship, rather, between Queen Victoria and an Indian Muslim servant, Abdul Karim. 
So that's the premise of the movie. And Queen Victoria's role is played by Dame Judi Dench. And Abdul Karim, the servant, the Muslim servant's role, is played by the very talented but completely wasted in this movie, Ali Fazal. Now, before I get on to what the movie represents and the failings of the movie, I wanted to touch upon the misgivings of why it irked me the wrong way as soon as the poster was released. (laughs) Because honestly, there are so many things wrong about this movie, I don't know where to begin, but let me try and contextualize them for you. There have been a slew of movies uh, that have come out in recent memory in the Western world about reappropriating colonial horrors or colonial history as this kind of somehow misguided but still a benevolent enterprise. You know, we tried really hard, guys, but you kind of messed up. Oops, sorry. You know, that kind of general vibe about them. We had Viceroy's House, which did the same thing with Lord Mountbatten and Winston Churchill's role with Indian history. And we have Victorian Abdul doing the same thing. We had one of the first movies in the year, which did very well across the world, especially in Australia, Lion, with, directed by Garth Davis, doing a similar kind of historical reappropriation about colonial history and representation of Indian characters on screen. I have a lot of issues about this, but let's move on to Victorian Abdul. It does a similar thing here about how Queen Victoria is just somehow a victim of the plots and the schemings and the misgivings going around her. She is an innocent, innocent monarch. She's just lonely. She's lost everyone she loves. And she's just looking for a genuine friendship. And voila, who she finds in this relationship? A lowly Indian Muslim servant, Abdul Karim, who just wants to serve her to the best of her ability. Because of course, that's what Indian people wanted to do with the British Raj. So who does she find? She finds the Indian Muslim servant, Abdul Karim, played by Ali Fazal, who is the perfect servant because he only wants to serve the queen. He thinks it's his rightful duty to do that. And in, through his service, through his dedication to Queen Victoria and the crown, what Judy Dench character, Queen Victoria, finds is this sort of unlikely servitude. And she finds the meaning of the word service itself because she realizes that she's here as the monarch to serve the people by forming this unlikely bond with her servant, Abdul Karim, who is here to serve her. Oh, wow. Well, let's all think Kumbaya and appreciate this bonding moment. No, we should not. Please don't. No, don't do that. You're doing it. You're thinking it. Don't do it. Please, no, no. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's seriously wrong. Just think about it for a moment. I mean, it is incredibly frustrating and incredibly humiliating to realize how we have reappropriated centuries, years, decades of colonial and post-colonial horrors and the scars that have been left behind by the British Raj into this kind of glossy popcorn Western idea of what is good and what is somehow light, breezy, almost a love story angle between the British Raj and its subjects who were oppressed for a long time. It is an unlikely love story between your oppressor and the oppressed and how we love to deal about that. You can check out Victorian Abdul, maybe with a slightly less political angle, but I wouldn't recommend so because some things need to be looked at with a proper lens. Victorian Abdul is in cinemas right now. I would urge you to not watch it, but if you were to watch it, watch it with the correct lens in mind. Up next, we'll be talking about the Adelaide Film Festival, where Chanel Tarabay will be replaced by the one and only Glenn Falkenstein. Magically into the studio. See you soon. Bye.
I'm Glenn Falkenstein for Falcon Screen, and we are joined by the director of the Adelaide Film Festival, Amanda Duthie. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me. So the Adelaide Film Festival is one of the biggest film events in Australia. It kicks off tomorrow night, and you've got a big opening night and big opening weekend festival plan, don't you? We, we do. So the, the film festival runs for um, 11 days, and we've... Um, we're really taking on the spirit of punk to celebrate the 40th anniversary this year. So we've um, sort of let go of your the usual format of opening night and we've dispensed with opening the, the festival with a feature film and um, we've gone fully punk, but I think punk future is, uh, is how we're sort of describing it. It's a little bit of a digital carnival of all of the different forms of of screen storytelling that we may have even more of in the future. So we have um, a number of world premieres of virtual reality works. We've created a mini drive-in inside the space where we're having our opening night party. We've got some fabulous guests. We're giving a special preview of Sophie Hyde's new series, Fucking Adelaide. So we'll be seeing episode one of that series. And... Um, yeah, just a general sort of celebration of, of holograms and games and virtual reality, and that's that's our opening night digital extravaganza. It sounds absolutely fantastic. I'm going to be there. I'm very much looking forward to it. And what I'm also very much looking forward to is the Australian premiere of Cargo, a film with very humble beginnings, but which has got a lot of amazing buzz. Totally. So that's that's our big Friday night event. Obviously, this was um, this has come out of. Um, a short film and is now this brilliant feature which um, interestingly is a Netflix feature but it was filmed here in South Australia and I like to call it a zombie tearjerker. It really sort of takes the genre and and wrestles it to the ground and, and takes it absolutely in a new direction. Martin Freeman is brilliant as the everyman central character and their gorgeous little baby and um, we followed their trek away from the virals in um, gorgeous South Australian desert landscape. And another big film on the lineup is Sweet Country. It's Warwick Thornton's big return to narrative feature filmmaking after quite a gap I'd say and it has a lot of buzz now having won the jury prize at Venice. How are you feeling about this film and what can, would you like to say about it? Yeah it's um it's it's been really fantastic for the Adelaide Film Festival to have such a, a long and incredibly productive commissioning relationship with with Warwick. So obviously the film festival was involved with Samson and Delilah. We're involved with the Dark Side, his um, his hybrid feature documentary about ghost stories, and um, and now back again with Sweet Country. But we've also been doing Art and the Moving Image with Warwick. And I was pretty chuffed to be in Venice at, uh, at the world premiere. Wow. And to see, um, you know, this extraordinary story and, and long-term collaborators of, of Warwick, David Tranto and Stephen McGregor, who really sort of contributed to the shaping of this story. Sam Neill and Brian Brown are in it, of course, but there are so many amazing unknown actors 
know, who will be known once everybody has seen this film. So many fantastic ha- actors who hail from, from Alice Springs. So we're thrilled to, to have the Australian premiere on the Saturday, the first Saturday night of the, the film festival. So Warwick will be here and Dylan, who was um, second unit, filming second unit, and um, so many of the cast and crew of this extraordinary film. I mean, when when you go to those big international festivals, you know, sometimes you read when you're at home, you read reports of the 20 minute standing ovation, <laughs> and um, often this ovation is really good and long and extended because European audiences, you know, give a lot of love. But this was really special, the response to Sweet Country, and um, it was yeah, just absolutely thrilling to be able to see it with um, with Warwick and the cast and crew and. And, and both Margaret Pomerantz and David Stratton were also there. Obviously, David was on the jury, but um, Margaret was doing stories from Venice, and so it was just right. really beautiful to see it with this extended Australian family. Yeah, fantastic. Great to hear about an Australian film really making waves internationally. Now, talking about international audiences giving standing ovations, mm-hmm. I'm really intrigued about Yorgos Lanthimos's latest uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer. That won the best screenplay at Cannes, uh, and uh, it's, uh, you know, really interesting. I really love his social critique in his movies, and I think he's doing something really different. Uh, could you talk a bit about that movie and how it's going to, I'm pretty sure, surprise a lot of people, because it is definitely quite a different film. It it absolutely is. I mean, I remember um, the Cannes Film Festival when The Lobster won, and people sort of would loved it and were bemused by it, and but were sort of quite honest and said that they really didn't understand it, but they still loved it. <laughs> and I think, um, I think that's so exciting to have a filmmaker creating works that are so curious and beguile the audience, not with a, a fully answered, fully dished up, resolved narrative that they leave us intrigued and sort of still mulling over it and unpacking it and being able to discuss it for such a long time after the actual viewing. It's not all neat and packed up before you go out to the um, the cinema car park. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm of the school where I really I don't want to talk too much about the films. I want people to sort of come to it fresh. But in terms of Killing of a Sacred Deer, it is absolutely one that will take your breath away, leave you a little bit curious and just be a little bit in awe of this filmmaker and, and the the incredible worlds that he conjures up. And yes, and Nicole Kidman, because I think it's definitely her year. It's definitely, we've been kidmanified, if we can, I can use that term. We've I'm been... going to start using that term as well. We have, we've got Kidman all throughout the program because we've got how to talk to girls at parties. Exactly, the new John Cameron Mitchell film. Yeah. Um, that has a pretty interesting uh, setup from what I've heard. Elle Fanning is playing an alien, is that right? That's right, but also it has the punk theme, so hello, pretty happy with that, <laughs> given that star theme. It's like, bang, we'll take that film. Yeah, it's really incredible, and so, and Nicole's also in flirting. So right, yeah. Is it sort of? I mean, I don't know too much about it beyond the base uh, scenario. Is it like using sci-fi to do a more a human metaphorical story, or is it more on the weirder kind of side? Because it's from Neil Gaiman, who does a little bit of both. As- he does. He really does. Um, he's he's 
so clever. I actually saw him at the airport. Ah, that would be a wow. geek out moment. And, um, but I was, you know, when you're struck mute because you see someone who is just such the hero. Yeah. And I couldn't think of anything to say to him, so I just gazed at him. Anyway. I'm um, already jealous of you, by the way. I mean, <laughs> just because he was, you know, you were tongue-tied, I would have cried. I think I would have shed actual tears and just ran away. <laughs> a pretty serious Neil Gaiman fans here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you know what he's like. He's a little bit punk. He's a little bit rock and roll. He mixes in his sci-fi, but it's absolutely about those human relationships. Right. And um, so um, again, it's another um, such a very capable director. Yeah, John Cameron who's, Mitchell. He's having fun with with um, you know the the mixing of those genres. Right. He he can really blend genres um, pretty deftly. I think Hedwig and the Angry Inch is the best yeah. example of that. But yeah, yeah, it's always exciting to see new work from him so I'm looking forward to it definitely um, another one I think audience will be really excited for and I had the great pleasure of seeing this the other day is Loving Vincent now uh, Van Gogh is one of my very special is a very special artist to me I remember spending the entire day in the museum in Amsterdam and mm. for fans of the artist this film it's so colourful it's mesmerising it really brings his creations to life well this is the world's first fully oil-painted feature film. You're absolutely drawn into the story. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful portrait of, portrait of an artist, but then sometimes you, you just sort of you have to stop yourself going, every frame is hand-painted, it's oil-painted. It's absolutely incredible, the amount of work that has gone into this film. The great thing is that because the story is timeless, because the work is so magnificent, it's one of those films that will last forever. I just couldn't believe how deftly they brought some of those figures to life. I and mean, we're yeah. familiar with some of them, but the way, and some of the actors in it too were quite phenomenal. And they'll be people that uh, audiences will most likely recognise from. I think so. And, and enough to recognise, but not to get sort of thrown out of, of the, the storytelling. But it's, it's, it's sort of a little bit of familiarity to, to help lead us through. So, yeah, it's, in, it's sublime. I love this film. Talking about sublime images and metaphorical things, <laughs> I wanted to draw attention to The Ornithologist, which has divided opinion on this panel. I seem to be the only fan of it, apparently. But uh, it won at Locarno, and Rodriguez is also on the jury of he the is. film festival this yeah. year. And he's a fantastic, quite unique filmmaker. And I think Ornithologist is, once again, a bit like Killing, a very unique film. It just definitely tests your patient at times and people will need to figure it out what it's about absolutely and so we're we're delighted that he's he's coming on our international feature fiction jury and um so he'll be you know we'll have the opportunity to sort of sit and listen to him talking to us about the film and yeah hoping lots of people can come and see it and also just you know it's always that that special privilege being at a film festival being able to meet the 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 key creatives behind these incredible works what is also very special about festivals is that in so many cases you get to see films way ahead of general audiences and one is a film that i'm excited about uh, because i grew up with winnie the pooh and a milne and it'll be a film that's quite special for yep. fans of that literature Yes. So goodbye, Christopher Robin. I don't think this is necessarily, you know, hey, come on, kids, you loved Winnie the Pooh, let's go and see this film. It's very much the um, sort of an, an older audience 
telling of um, A.A. Milne's return from war and therefore what inspired him to, um, to create these in- incredible now classics. Um, so it's, it's a bit more from an adult's point of view. It could be family viewing, but it's not really, um, you know, for the younger audiences. But it's incredibly moving and it's so great to have that insight into to the early days of the, the creation of that work. Talking about creation and creative work, <laughs> a film that I really enjoyed and still kind of, you know, annoys me to some degree is uh, Ruben Ostlund's Palm Dior winner, The Square. And yes. uh, I think it will... I don't know, bring about certain reactions from people because it is quite an interesting satire of the art world. Uh, thoughts about that and how people might respond to it because it definitely seems to have had quite polarizing reactions. Yes, indeed. Um, I think, um, you know, Adelaide has a very proud heritage of being a festival city and, um, you know, we have incredible arts festivals and music festivals, you know, incredible galleries and collections. So I am really keen for the arts community to come out and see this film. Yeah, I can't wait for that lobby conversation after screening The Square. Yes, especially with that one scene, I think it's going to have a lot of people talking. Yeah, um, a film that I am... really excited for people to see because I've been lucky enough to see already is Call Me By Your Name. I think this movie is absolutely extraordinary. Sublime. Yeah, what did you think of it? Sublime. Yeah, I, I, was, I, think, I was shocked. Yeah, the, the I, when I say Italian shocked, summary summerness of it, yeah, you just... Yeah, it's such a relaxing watch. Powerful. I don't mean shocking, like it's a shocking no, film. It, no, it goes no. down very smoothly, but it's so powerful. It, it yeah. takes you by surprise. So many people I've met have said that this is already the, the film of the year for them. Mm. Yes, and I, I think in terms of narratives, it's it's done something for queer narratives, which, you know, in terms of just telling a positive story, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. isn't there, you know, we see a lot of pesos and a lot of depressing and coming out narratives, but often you don't see that positive you know, happy stories when you talk about queer narratives. So I think yeah. this was refreshing. It avoids the cliches of the genre, I think. I agree. I mean, it's very much a, it's a summer love story, but it it takes it to some other new mm. level. And, and the Army Hammer is gorgeous. Right. So. And it has such a such a sense of place, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a brilliant film. Really brilliant. Um, There are too many brilliant films in this program. We can't yeah. talk about all of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's what's coming through today, yeah. about all of them now. Yeah, I'm particularly looking forward to it. I'm also looking forward to calling you by your name because I'm the only one here who has yet to see it, but I will be seeing it in the next few days along with and yourself and a number of other films. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. It's so excited and we're really looking forward to the festival. Yeah. Total pleasure. I can't wait to welcome you to Adelaide. Film, film. Film, film. Fight! Club! Yeah!